Hi, this is John, by the way, and today I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 14, 15, and 16. And that's not very many chapters, which tells us these chapters must be rich in content and doctrine, right? Well, chapter 14, I noticed as I was reading it that Paul speaks a lot about edifying. I underlined the word edify in verse 3, a couple of times in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 12, in verse 17, again in verse 26. There may be more that I might have missed, but the whole thing is following a discussion about the gift of tongues. So the gift of tongues can be very outward and visible and perhaps impressive, but Paul seems to be saying, is it edifying or is it a showy display? Is there someone there who can interpret the tongues? In other words, that seems like the way that God would do it, not just for one person doing a, a showy display. You might remember that strange things happened like this in the early days of the Restoration, where people jumped around and did strange things. One guy even acted like a baboon. It wasn't edifying. And that's when Doctrine and Covenants section 50 was revealed. Section 50 has an absolutely wonderful group of verses here. Verse 21, Therefore, why is it that ye cannot understand and know that he that receiveth the word by the Spirit of truth receiveth it as it is preached by the Spirit of truth. Wherefore, he that preacheth and he that receiveth understand one another, and both are edified and rejoice together. And that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. Boy, that verse 23, that which doth not edify is not of God and is darkness. I mean, that could be the whole section on media in For the Strength of Youth, right? Does it edify? If it doesn't edify, and is, then it's not of God and is darkness. So in my Revelations of the Restoration commentary, on page, let's see, 383, this is a book by Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig J. Osler. It's a commentary on the Doctrine and Covenant. Well, it's actually a commentary on all the revelations of the Restoration. So it's also a commentary on the lectures on faith as well as the Pearl of Great Price. But let me tell you what Joseph Fielding McConkie and Craig Osler said. Quote, the truths of heaven cannot be taught by a teacher who does not stand in the light of heaven, nor can they be learned by a student who does not bask in that same light. Standing together in that light, both are edified and rejoice together. Anciently, the verb to edify meant to build sacred edifices such as temples. Through the years, the word edify has come to describe the process of improving character or building spirituality. All that is of God edifies, that is, it lifts, builds, and improves. Conversely, to edify is to eschew that which demeans, belittles, or excuses. To edify is to make the body and the soul of man a holy tabernacle, a temple to God. If a doctrine does not offer the opportunity to reach, to build, or to improve, it is not of God. Great comment. So, I think that Paul is talking about, look, there's a lot of spiritual gifts out there, and some of you have really wanted that gift of tongues or have seen it and been impressed. But as we all know, 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 said, hey, charity is the one. Charity is the one that endureth forever. And anything else you do, even if you can speak with the tongue of men and angels and don't have charity, you're nothing but meaningless noise, as we talked about last time. So, does it edify? That is the big question. One of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians 14 is verse 19. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Years ago, I wrote a little book called Sermons in a Sentence. I just kind of noticed that when I marked my scriptures, I was usually marking phrases, not entire verses. And I love that Paul said, I'd rather hear five words in church. So in this little book that I wrote in 2012, it's probably out of print, I had five-word sermons. Uh, I just thought you might be interested in these. James 1.5, let him ask of God. Abraham 3.27, here am I, send me. Powerful words. Uh, Section 122, art thou greater than he. Uh, Mosiah 27.4, laboring with their own hands. Alma 34, the day of this life. Mosiah 4, are we not all beggars? That's a sermon in a sentence. 2 Nephi 25, pure hearts and clean hands. Alma 61, great privilege of our church. 3 Nephi 9, that I may heal you. Is it possible to have a powerful sermon in five words? Yep, sure is. I, the Lord, forgive sins. That's a sermon in a sentence, and it's short, and it's, but it's powerful. Paul says, I'd rather hear five words. Other verses in 1 Corinthians 14 that are powerful. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. I remember as a Boy Scout hearing the idea, I can't remember where I read this, but that, that God prefers a righteous environment, and it was incentive to keep my room clean. If I wanted an answer to prayers, God doesn't want a disorder. Keep your room clean. It was a good incentive for that. There is such a thing as a righteous environment where the Spirit can be, and a messy, cluttered, dirty, smelly room is not a righteous environment. Think of the temple and what a righteous environment that is and why the Spirit can be there. When we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we all know that as an important chapter on the resurrection. Remember, the Greeks didn't like the idea of resurrection. They didn't like the idea of coarse, unrefined, corruptible matter coming back to life. Paul is very careful to talk about that this corruption will put on incorruption, that it won't just be our same body back, but it will be an incorruptible body. It won't be flesh and blood. He even says that in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So when we speak of resurrected bodies, we speak of flesh and bone instead. Anyway, Paul often talks about Adam and Christ together and how Adam brought death into the world through Adam's transgression, the fall, the fortunate fall, we would say, And because of Christ, however, we can be delivered. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, For since by man came death, 
by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Verse 23 says, But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Afterward, they are they that are Christ's at his coming. The first fruits of them that slept is such a great phrase to remind us that Jesus was the first to be resurrected, but also, elegantly, it coincided with one of the ancient feasts of the first fruits. The first fruits coming at approximately the same time of year when Jesus was resurrected. So Paul speaks of Jesus as the first fruits of them that slept. In chapter 15, we get a long list of those who were resurrected. So in the commentary called Verse by Verse, Acts through Revelation by D. Kelly Ogden and Andrew C. Skinner, they summarize 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 32 like this. How could some say there is no resurrection? Not only did the Sadducees deny the reality of the resurrection, but some of those espousing Greek mythology and philosophy believed that the body was evil, that though there might be eternal life for the spirit, there certainly was none for the body. Paul's response is that the doctrine of the resurrection is pivotal in importance and that all other truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ depend on it. In effect, Paul says the following, verse 13, If there's no resurrection, then Christ is dead. Verse 14, If there's no resurrection, then we're wasting our time and our faith is a terrible joke. Verse 15, If there's no resurrection, then we, apostolic preachers, are liars. Verse 17, If there's no resurrection, there's no spiritual redemption and no redemption from physical death. Verse 29, If there's no resurrection, why perform baptisms for the dead? Verse 32, And finally, If there's no resurrection, why am I working so hard, killing myself off? So 1 Corinthians 15.29, that verse which we sometimes cite as evidence for the idea, for the practice of baptism for the dead, is put in a list of evidences that there is a resurrection for the dead. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? A practice they evidently were currently doing if the dead rise not at all. Why are they then baptized for the dead? So, let me read some more from Ogden and Skinner. It is essential to discuss the ordinance of baptism itself when talking about the bold doctrine of baptism for the dead. If baptism by immersion is mandatory for the living for entrance into the kingdom of God, as Jesus and his apostles plainly taught, It should also be a requirement for those who have passed on who had no opportunity to receive baptism during mortality. There is evidence outside the Bible that the ordinance of baptism for the dead was taught and practiced by early Christians. Even the Roman Catholic Jerome Biblical Commentary admits that it seems as though Christians at Corinth, quote, would undergo baptism in the name of their deceased non-Christian relatives and friends, hoping that this vicarious baptism might assure them a share in the redemption of Christ, close quote. Nevertheless, the commentary regards the passage as obscure and the practice strange. Many scholars find no satisfactory explanation for such a practice. And yet there it is. And the honest commentaries that I've read say it sounds like this is what they were doing. 
And this is not where the practice came from in the restoration. The reason that we have it now is because of the revelation called Doctrine and Covenants, section 128. And it just so happens that Paul talks about it. But the practice of a vicarious baptism was evidently in the New Testament and was taught. And as part of the restoration of all things, here it is. And lastly, this idea of the resurrection, it always reminds me of something I've mentioned before, the three levels of Christmas. (laughs) The first level is the Santa Claus level, where this kind of secular Christmas, Santa Claus and reindeer and and the Grinch and all those stories and things and stockings by the chimney, all of those things that we do are the way we celebrate Christmas. There's a higher level, and that's the baby Jesus. And William B. Smart, who wrote this little essay in the church news years ago, what William B. Smart said is that some want to keep Christ in the manger. They're okay with the baby Jesus, but we don't want to go further than that for Christmas. We'll just sing Silent Night and be done. But there's a higher level, he says. The third level of Christmas is the resurrection, is Christ the Lord, the adult Christ. And that's why in recent General Conference talks, we have heard about the importance of Easter and talking more about Easter than we do. Because without Easter, there's no Christmas and there's no level one Santa Claus either. One of the last things I really enjoy about 1 Corinthians 15 is that it reminds me of attending Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah uses as a text for the solos, there's a soprano, alto, tenor bass soloist, as well as a chorus, and the text is all scripture. One of the verses in Handel's Messiah uses 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Behold, I shew you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So after this, after Paul teaches this wonderful doctrine of resurrection, he says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So that's the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 couple of things I enjoy about 1 Corinthians 16, if you'll pardon the personal expression. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 7 says, I will not see you now, by the way, but I trust to tarry a while with you, if the Lord permit. (laughs) Verse 14, let all your things be done with charity. And a lot of chapter 15 is just some, some final greetings and gratitude to certain individuals to whom he is writing. Well, I hope this has been useful for you today in looking at these marvelous chapters, especially chapter 15, about resurrection, but mentions briefly baptism for the dead. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. 